Hey, listeners, I have recently released my YouTube channel called The Light. They are short, inspirational videos to get you moving towards a greater you and a better life. New episodes come out every Monday and Friday, but only on YouTube. You can go to the show notes to click a link to get yourself directly to the channel. Please like, subscribe, comment, and share. Thank you so much and enjoy. Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. Today we have the son of Bill Haley who was a rock and roll legend, the author of Crazy Man Crazy, The Bill Haley Story. He is a businessman, musician, performer, and publisher. Please welcome to the show, Bill Haley Jr., Bill, welcome to Before the Lights. Hey, Tommy. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. I'm excited. You grew up in Pennsylvania, and I want to start off here at a very young age. At the age of five, you had a pair of drumsticks and a cardboard box that kind of started your musical journey in a garage. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a little blip in my memory, but yeah, it's one of my earliest memories of, uh, of interacting with my father uh, musically. Um, the band, Bill Haley and his Comets. Um, so so at the age of, so I would have been about 1960. I was born in 1955. They were uh, past their heyday, so to speak, here in the U.S., but of course they were still performing and, and quite active. And uh, they would practice in our garage. We lived in Boothwin, Pennsylvania, and we had a three-car garage, which they used for a uh, rehearsal area. And um, I wandered in there a few times and uh, and my dad wanting to, you know, involve me, I guess, gave me a cardboard box, a set of drumsticks and said, play along. So uh, I certainly did. And uh, I remember it to this day. So it must have had an impact on me. What instruments do you play and which ones have you taught yourself? Well, um, I play guitar primarily. I, I'm really, you know, I've always thought of myself as a singer who plays guitar rather than a guitarist who sings. Um, but, but, you know, interestingly, you know, I, I, I play guitar. I guess I probably started around the age of 14 or 15. Actually, I had one of my father's old instruments, which I really didn't appreciate the value of. It was an old, big, thick necked acoustic nylon string guitar. So that was my first, uh, first attempt to learn to play. But then I, it was about 15. I think a friend of mine had a couple of guitars and we decided to learn guitar together. So basically I taught myself using those, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the music books that have just the chord diagrams. So I would get books of like Beatles and, mm -hmm. you know, things I was familiar with and just learn how to, you know, work the chords and, and, you know, did it enough time until it sounded okay. So, uh, so pretty much that was it. I played a guitar a lot of my life, but really, uh, basically what you would call rhythm guitars. But um, interestingly, in uh, I don't know if that's interesting, but it is to me, um, for the last couple of years, I've actually taken a, a keen interest in trying to learn to play some lead guitar. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of YouTube lessons, <laughs> uh, particularly on rockabilly style guitar. So I spend about an hour or two every night, you know, when I'm done my, my day's work, I sit down in front of the television and just kind of practice for a couple of hours each night. And uh, slowly but surely, I'm, I'm getting better. I played a little piano throughout my life. But once again, it's just basically playing chords. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even be so bold as to call myself a pianist. I'm going to get back into your music career here and what you're doing these days. I want to start with your father and the book Crazy Man Crazy, the Bill Haley story. Listeners, go to the show notes. I'm going to put a link to that as well into uh, Bill's website. 
How much research did you do to write this biography? Oh, I did an incredible amount of research. I mean, this is really basically a 40 year project by the time it came to fruition. So it started out. So, um, you know, I, I'm going to cut to the chase here quickly and then to set this up. So, you know, my father basically um, abandoned our family. There's no pretty way to put it, you know. Um, and, and so coming to terms with that is really the, the spark that ignited my interest in learning as much as I could about my father. So as a uh, journalism student at Temple University, uh, I was given a project to write something biographical. And so I, uh, I wrote about my father. So I, that's where the research started. Um, then it really never stopped. But but mm. probably, uh, I'm going to say, uh, in the uh, late 70s, early <clears throat> early 80s, I took a really, uh, uh, I aspired to say, you know, I'm going to turn this into a book. So I started conducting interviews and recording interviews uh, with my mother in particular, uh, who was married to my father during that formative period from 1952 to 1962. And my father's business manager during those years, too, was was available. So um, those two uh, gave me uh, dozens of hours of interviews. And then I went on and interviewed most of the uh, musicians who played with my father during those early years. Um, and then other you know, managers, business associates, so on and so forth. So probably about 20, 30 individuals I interviewed over the period. And then, of course, they conducted a lot of other research. And then um, I'm going to say in the uh, late 1990s, maybe, um, I, I kind of got connected to a Yahoo discussion group called the Razor Bunnies, who were, who were a small but very, very uh, scholarly group of individuals who had an interest in my father's career and interacted with them as well. And, and through that uh, uh, association, I, I learned a great deal as well and was you know, directed to a lot of uh, other materials and research, um, you know, and then listening to the music, of course. So it was just a long, long, long process. Um, and then on the side, I uh, I became interested in performing my father's music. I avoided it most of my life because of the intimidation factor and so on and so forth. I mean, I enjoyed playing for fun and I had a, a little garage band. Um, but one thing led to another at a certain point and, and we were given an opportunity to go into a recording studio where I uh, recorded a, studio, uh, a, a CD of my original tunes called a Bill Haley and the Satellites. CD was already here. It was called after one of the songs. So we did a CD release party and the hosts of the party in a retail store uh, asked me as a favor if I could perform some of my father's music. Um, so I did a couple of his tunes and rock around the clock. And one of the one of the individuals there recorded a cell phone video, put it on YouTube. And uh, I got a call from a booking agent who contacted me uh, based in Florida. Wolfman Jack Productions and said, if you can put together a band to do this uh, professionally, I could get you some work. So I, I, I created a new band. I went out and find, found musicians who really specialized in, you know, their slap bass techniques and the trash can style of Gene Krupa drumming and so on and so forth. And we, we started doing a lot of work um, and getting around and, um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, we actually had a tour of New Zealand in 2014, which was pretty phenomenal. Uh, but most of we, we travel around the state. So so through that, I kind of um, once again made additional contacts and, and continued you know, getting exposure. I played in in the UK a couple of times at some of the festivals and I ended up getting interviewed for a um, one of those uh, rockabilly magazines over there. And that led to um, getting a call from a from a literary agent. 
you said, would you be interested in writing a book about your father? Mm. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I uh, have a 160,000 word manuscript I've been working on. So I sent that to him and um, he liked it, but he saw that it needed it needed some uh, some professional you know work on it. So he, he, uh, he paired me up with a with, uh, the gentleman who turned out to be my co-author in the book, Peter Benjaminson. And Peter, uh, he's a writer out of New York City, and he's written a lot about uh, Motown and, um, you know, a lot of the uh, soul groups in the 60s. So uh, Peter took my 160,000 words and he, he he chopped it down to the 80,000 that the publishers uh, requ- requested um, and, uh, and and got the book published. So that was came out in late 19. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 2019. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we so uh, all that together led to my interest in and the book was a long journey and and and. Um, and, you know, I, maybe it's one of those lessons and in, in don't don't give up, <laughs> just, just persist. <laughs> but it all worked out. So, yeah, the book's out and uh, I'm very happy with it. And um, and then it just kind of adds to, you know, what I'm doing in terms of, of you know, um, trying to continue my father's legacy. Mm-hmm. So in the act that we do, um, Bill Haley Jr. and the Comets, we go out and we perform my father's music. But I tell a lot of stories in between the songs. We and I do a little PowerPoint a presentation of like 200 photos that runs simultaneous to the show. So, so, you know, the book is all part of the whole, you know, tell the Bill Haley story um, uh, effort on my part. Your father was credited with popularizing rock and roll in the early fifties. And I think that there's maybe some people out there that have a misconception that he was a one hit wonder when he was far from that. Oh, that's, so, that's so true. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, my father really, he started out as a hillbilly and Western artist, you know, what we now call country music. And that was really his first love. But he also aspired to become rich and famous. And um, and he, he went formed a number of hillbilly bands. But in 1949, he got together with a couple of other hillbilly artists um, and, and they formed a partnership and a band called The Saddleman in 1949. And their 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 ambition was to was to find a way to. Um, become popular to sell records and um, and to get people dancing again. That was that was you know the big bands were gone and that was kind of you know an aspiration of theirs. So they would do their hillbilly and western music. Need a lot of covers and so on and so forth. But they wrote some tunes. But but they all loved also what was then called race music or rhythm and blues. And um, I'm sure you know most of your listeners are aware if they're aware of you know American history that that there was you know an ongoing race issue in this country for a long time and. And this was all prior to the Civil Rights Acts of 1964. So back in those days, rhythm and blues or race music was not readily available to most you know, white listeners. Um, but my father was also a disc jockey on a radio station called WPWA in Chester, Pennsylvania. And um, it, not only, you know, prior to that, through his travels around the country, he was exposed and he, he was a big fan of it himself. He loved Ruth Brown and, and Big Joe Turner. But there was a show, a uh, one hour show on that radio program called Judge Rhythm's Court, hosted by a fellow by the name of Jim Reeves. And um, Jim would start off his show with a song called Rock the Joint by Jimmy Preston and his Prestonians. Uh, it was recorded on the Gotham label. My dad loved that song. And so did his partner. So one place six nights a week at a place called the Twin Bars in Gloucester, New Jersey. And they do their hillbilly and Western act. But one night as a joke, my father turned to the guy and said, let's do that rock a joint thing, get a laugh. And lo and behold, instead of laughing, the the 
audience who were primarily sailors who were stationed at the Philadelphia Navy Yard and, and their girlfriends. Uh, they jumped out of their chairs and they danced and hooted and hollered. And instead of laughing, they loved it. And they you know, would start requesting that. So that was kind of the beginning. This is the year 1950 of my father saying, hey, maybe there's something to this, a white hillbilly band playing rhythm and blues music. And so really, um, over the next four years, they they really experimented. They would listen to, you know, Count Basie records for the beat and and listen and and just try to figure out a way to uh, to, to combine these two sounds. And they took on a manager in 1952 who, who said, you know, Bill, if you're going to sell records, it's not going to be to the sailors. It's going to be to the teenagers. So he convinced my father and his bandmates to play high school record hops and assemblies for free. And they did 182 of those appearances in 1952-53. And they would watch the kids. And when they saw the toes tap and the shoulders moving, they said, man, you know, we got something here. So um, that's what they did. And 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 they started putting out these records on this small label out of Philadelphia. First, it was called Holiday. And then it was called Essex Records. Uh, they would put out these records where they would do a hillbilly and Western tune on the A side. And on the B side, they would do an original, you know, race record or rhythm and blues tune. Um, and just, you know, slowly but surely, they started cultivating a following. But in 1953, they were doing one of these high school shows at Eddie Stone High School. And they were putting the instruments in the car and some of the kids came up to him. And my dad said, well, what do you guys think of uh, our music? And and there was one kid in particular. Apparently, uh, his brother was a uh, was a beatnik or something. But he would snap his fingers and say, like, crazy, man, crazy. And I, I just struck my dad. He, he wrote that down on his hand with a pen, ballpoint pen and, and, and went back to lunch. Uh, my mother would, was making lunch for him and the bass player. And he wrote a tune called Crazy Man Crazy about kids dancing and having a good time. And they recorded it the next day at Coastal Studios in New York City. And lo and behold, the record became a national hit. It, it was so they had had regional hits, you know, in the Philadelphia, Baltimore area, but they hadn't had anything national. Well, Crazy Man Crazy went to number 13 in cash box, number 12 on Billboard. And it was covered by Ralph Martieri and his big band. And 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 all of a sudden they had a hit record of this sound that nobody really could describe. Um, and it caught the attention of um, some of the major record labels who uh, at that time, Capital, RCA, and Decca Records were the three major labels. And Decca Records in particular, the A&R band was Milt Gabler, who had been a producer of many jazz artists throughout the 30s, 40s. And he produced uh, Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five, one of the most popular you know, uh, rhythm and blues bands uh, of the 40s. And uh, Louis Jordan had left that label. So they were kind of looking for a replacement. So the timing was perfect. So they they signed Bill Haley and the Comets to come in. And so April the 12th, 1954, this is four years after they started experimenting with this hybrid sound. Uh, they went into the first recording session at DECA and um, Gabler, uh, the first song he wanted them to record was something he owned a piece of. It was a song called 13 Women and Only One Man in Town. It was actually written by a member of, of the Tiffany Five. So, um, the, you know, the band didn't hadn't heard of the tune and they didn't read music. So it really took a while to to figure it out and to work out an arrangement. And then, of course, back in those days, there were no overdubs and isolation booths. When you recorded, it was the entire band. You had to get it in one take. And if you screwed it up, you had to do it again. So it took seven tries. They finally got it in the can. And then with 45 minutes left in the session, they said, OK, what are we going to put on the B side? And so the band got to choose the B-side. So they had this song they had been messing around with called We're Going to Rock Around the Clock. And uh, so they knocked that off in two takes. 
13 women was released by DECA and it, it charted the 20, number 26, but then it fell off the charts and probably would have been a forgotten record. Um, but a month later, they went back into DECA studios and they recorded a cover of a song called Shake, Rattle and Roll, which was a big hit for Joe Turner. It was written by Charles Calhoun. And that became a multi-million seller for the band in 1954. Um, uh, sold three million copies. So it was, you know, on the strength of that, Decca said, we got something with these guys. So they signed them, you know, and they put out a few more records and they were they were doing pretty well. But as it turns out, um, there was a 13 year old kid in, in Beverly Hills, California. who was a big fan of, of the Saddlemen and then the Comets. And he bought 13 women and didn't really like it much, but he flipped it over and he loved the B-side. So he played the heck out of that. And it just so happens that his father, an actor by the name of Glenn Ford, was starring in a movie that was being uh, made called The Blackboard Jungle, based on a, a novel by Evan Hunter about juvenile delinquency in a Brooklyn high school. And when Richard Brooks, the director of the movie, was over at the Ford's house talking to Glenn Ford, he said, you know, we're going to need a, a, a song or a record to put on the soundtrack of this movie that's going to be, you know, quite controversial and shocking movie. Um, and Glenn said, well, my son Peter's a big music fan. Let's go check out his record collection. So they went up there and they found Rock Around the Clock right on the top of the stack and uh, picked up that and, and two other records, uh, Joe Turner's Shake, Rattle and Roll and a song called All Night Long by the Joe Houston Orchestra. Took it back to the studio or the, uh, the movie studio and played it for some people. And they all agreed Rock Around the Clock would be perfect. So they ended up putting it on the soundtrack of The Blackboard Jungle, which was released in March of 1955. 11 months after it was recorded and almost forgotten. And when that movie came out, the kids just went crazy for that record. They, they went, ran out and started requesting it on the radio and, 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 you know, asking for it in the record stores. So Decca re-released it as the A-side. And by July, five months later, or whatever it is, math is five, six months, it was the first number one record in rock and roll history. Um, but it was not yet called rock and roll. The, the, the label, uh, described it as a fox trot with vocal chorus, mm. so uh, that was the kind of the uh, the demarcation point where this new phenomena uh, that would become come to be called rock and roll started. Um, now, Alan Freed had been around and he'd been playing you know race records on his radio show in WINS in New York City and before that in Cleveland, and um, and and. You know, my father later claimed that uh, Alan Freed coined the term rock and roll uh, based on the lyrics of a record my father or tune my father wrote in 1952 um, called Rock a Beat and Boogie. It starts out rock, 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 everybody, roll, 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 everybody. But the, you know, the, the phenomena of rock and roll, I, you know, I, I, people say, well, did your father invent rock and roll? You know, I, I, I kind of maybe splitting hairs, but I make the distinction. He didn't invent rock and roll. The, the, the. Musical forces of hillbilly and Western or country music and rhythm and blues or race music, they were going to come together. It was inevitable. But my father recognized that and um, exploited it, for want of a better word, to create you know popular music four or five years before Elvis Presley went into a, you know, went into Sun Studios to make a record and, and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and a lot of these others who are now creators of rock and roll. Well, my dad really predated those guys by four or five years doing exactly the same thing. And he had the first hits. Um, but because for a number of reasons, one, because, you know, my father was 30 by the time rock around the clock came out and all these other youngsters were, were, you know, mm. in their teens or 
if they're early 20s, they were young, sexy, exciting. Um, you know, by, by mid-1956, my father, who had been the king of rock and roll, was now um, replaced as the king by Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. And, you know, as, as things went on, you know, my father, his hits in the U.S., um, uh, ceased to, to happen. I mean, 1958 was his last big hit, but, but, um, but then he would go over to, to, uh, to Europe, to England and UK, Australia, he did these major tours. He did a major tour of, 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 uh, the UK in 19 February, 1957. And during that tour, uh, there was a whole generation of 14, 15 year old boys like Paul McCartney and Graham Nash and Peter Townsend and so on and so forth, who got their first exposure to rock and roll and they, you know, that lit, lit their spark. So it was kind of like when the Beatles came to America and, and were appeared on Ed Sullivan in 1964, how all kinds of young American boys picked up a guitar and wanted to become rock and roll stars. Well, the same thing happened in 57 in England uh, with my father. So, so, um, you know, to, to say he was a flash in the pan or one hit wonder is not really accurate. He probably had 40, hits, you know, 40 top 40 hits and uh Enforced Rock Around the Clock was is still the third best selling single of all time. Um and he had several other multi-million sellers. So um so not only did he have a number of hits, but he but he really was extremely influential um in terms of of creating opportunities for the other rock and roll pioneers uh, and also influencing a whole generation of, of English musicians who would start bands like the Beatles and the Who and so on and so forth. So um so, yeah, and, and I think we, one other final point I'll put on that is this. Because it was all brand new and experimental, my father, as I mentioned, was a hillbilly and Western or country artist. And he was playing rhythm and blues tunes. But during the process, he also, his band also evolved and his sound also evolved. And when he went into the recording studio, they used a jazz drummer, Billy Gusak, who was a big man drummer. Uh, they brought in saxophone players who were jazz players uh, and guitar players who were jazz players. So my dad's sound was really a hybrid of three forms, including jazz. That's not true of all the other rock and roll pioneers. That Most of them were basically in one form or another, you know, a, hill, a West or country people doing rhythm and blues or rhythm and blues doing country. But the whole, that, that, jazz sound with the sax and all was absent from all those others. So my father's sound was not quite like, you know, the rockabilly sound and, 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 you know, what became the predominant, you know, um, uh, uh, sound of rock and roll in those years. So for all those reasons, I think he's kind of overlooked and dismissed, but he was extremely important and influential and had a tremendous uh, career, successful career. Um, he just, you know, it, it the timing was such that he didn't really uh, he didn't really uh, uh, stick in the minds of the not, not so much the public, but the critics later who, who would. I mean, even even when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was created, my dad was not inducted in the first class. It was the second year when he was inducted. So so he, he is kind of overlooked and it's kind of unfortunate. But, um, you know, maybe eventually history will catch up. And, you know, maybe my book and what I'm doing is, is part of helping people to uh, to realize that he deserves more credit than he gets. This is my story. No symptoms to being diagnosed with colon cancer, which led to four surgeries and a 50-50 survival rate. It then spread to my liver, in which only 3% are caught in time. Now, 
a 1% chance it ever comes back. And I'm on the road to inspiring everyone because you have three choices, live, die, or fight. Bernie Siegel said, no matter what the statistics say, there's always a way. To book me, Tommy Canale, to speak to your event or group, go to TommyCanale.com. That's TommyCanale.com. And get ready to be inspired to inspire others because you're one day away from changing your life. Click the link in the show notes. Is one of the more surprising facts possibly as you're spreading the word about your father is that he passed at an age of 55. Do people think that he was much older when he passed? I mean, I know he had a terrible addiction problem with alcohol and fought that, but it's just the simple fact when you say he passed away at 55, does that open people's eyes? Yeah. I, you know, I think, I think that's, that's, that's part of it. You know, not only his early passing, but also my father's personality, you mentioned his drinking and I, 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 you know, I, I don't skirt that issue at all in the book. As a matter of fact, I, I really kind of explore that issue in the book. Alcoholism was a very big part of, of, of his, you know, the negative side or the issues that held him back. Um, and, and also he was by nature um, a, a, a kind of a, a socially awkward, shy individual. Um, uh, he was blind in his left eye from the age of four. Um, that was part of it. And I think part of it, too, was just his his personality. He, he just kind of was an introvert. Um, and he would he would it was really difficult for other band members and managers to get him to do, uh, you know, interviews and go to press parties and to play the game that you play, you know, as when you're trying to, to cultivate, you know, a following and, and fame. So he kind of resisted that, didn't really cooperate with that much. He was very private. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, he had his, his demons with alcohol and, you know, no sugar coating it. He, he really, you know, um, mistreated our family and, and, and a previous family. He actually ended up with three different families. But when he in 1962, when his fame here in the United States was was waning um, and um, um, he had they had some business interests that were failing. You know, they had they built a recording studio. They had a number of artists they were trying to promote. Uh, they also invested in things like a machine shop and you know many things. But it all came crashing down. Um they had some bookkeeping issues, so there were unpaid uh, payroll taxes, and the IRS was hounding them for that. So that and the drinking, that which really didn't start until that 1957 UK tour, uh, but by 1962 had really taken its grip on him. So all those things um, led to a decision on his part to basically flee to Mexico Um and and he and he didn't look back. He didn't he didn't financially support our family or keep in touch. Um, and and so um, you know there there's a lot of those heavy things in the background. I think all contributed to um, the negative karma. I guess that followed him around for want of a better word. So in addition to the drinking, he was also a very heavy smoker. And um, now I did get back in touch with my dad the last year and a half of his life, and it was a, a really a, a many you know dozens, scores, if not hundreds of late night telephone calls, mostly um, of him rambling, being inebriated. So it was more like monologues. But but I, I did get to know him somewhat then. And I can say that he was he was deeply troubled and he was having marriage issues uh, with his third wife where he had three children with his third wife. Um, and so he was actually like living in um, 
uh, a pool house behind the house. So he's kind of, you know, estranged from his third wife. And it was really, really troubled him. Um, and the day before he died, um, he called me and I'm sure he called my other brothers and, and other people. Um, and he was very, very distraught. He was pleading with me to call his third wife and to help get him back together. And um, so I think all three of those factors, the, the you know, the, the, um, the, you know, the health issues related to drinking and smoking and, and, and you know, his isolation and, and his psychological state. He was very, you know, very upset. All contributed to his early death, which was very, very tragic. Um, um, but uh, unfortunately, it's not uncommon. I mean, Elvis died in his 40s, I think. Um, um, and there, there are many, many stories of famous people who, sure. who you know, died, died at an early age. So mm-hmm. I guess he fits that fits that uh, stereotype quite well. Did he start working on his own autobiography to put into a book? And if so, were you able to get your hands on that to write yours? Uh, he did, and I wasn't, um, but but I know quite a bit about it. So, um, and actually, it, interestingly, I, I was able in, during my research for my book. Actually, before the after the book was published, I got my hands on about six hours of recorded conversations with a business associate back here in Philadelphia, where he talked about his his attempt to write his autobiography as well. And he was going to call it something like, like Bill Haley, the the creator of rock and roll. So he kind of wanted to set the record straight. Um, and he, he, apparently there were about a hundred pages of the manuscript when he died. Now that ended up in the hands of his third family. Mm. Um, my step brother, half brother, I'm not sure he called half brother, um, Pedro, um, took that and he, um, he asked his old college professor and another uh, individual who's, who's, who's one of those I uh, mentioned earlier, the Yahoo discussion group called the Razor Bunnies, the Haley experts. Well, one of those uh, gentlemen named Chris Gardner. Uh, so uh, Pedro asked Chris Gardner and his ex-professor to take that 100 page manuscript and try to finish it, make it into a book. So they did. Um, and. I I still I know Chris quite well and we converse and Chris often will, you know, uh, contact me to ask me uh, uh, detailed questions about this or that. But he, because of a NDA non-disclosure agreement, he cannot share the actual manuscript with me. Mm-hmm. But I think I have a good feel for what it's what's in there, and what's not, you know, what's, what's missing. So at this point, I think they're still looking for a publisher for that. And I really don't know the. Um, the, the status of it, but apparently they're having difficulty finding a publisher picking that up. Um, now I, I, I'm going to say this too, and I, I I'm speculating here, but one of my father's um, uh, issues was he would often exaggerate things, um, and um, and he would just tell different versions of different stories. Um, so there's you really have to kind of pick through what's really true, what's not. And I, I suspect that's part of the issue too with the book. And I know Chris Gardner is very scholarly and has a lot of integrity. So I think a lot of what he did was to try to pick out what out of those hundred pages, what's actually factual and what isn't and try to straighten that out. So I, I imagine that that's part of the issue too, that it's kind of a um, a bit of a labor to kind of pick through what's what with all that and, and to make it digestible and, um, and entertaining. So um you know, maybe one day it will emerge. Hopefully it will. And I'll get to read it. But at this point, I have not actually seen the manuscript. You had mentioned earlier that you now have a five piece combo band 
that performed songs from the 50s and 60s named Bill Haley Jr. and the Comets. How difficult was it for you to get the name, the Comets, to put on this band that your father had? Well, you know, I guess I was kind of fortunate because um, in the in the 1980s, um, Dick Clark did a, I, I guess it was maybe a 50-year tribute to Rock Around the Clock. Maybe it was a TV thing. I'm not quite sure exactly what it was, but he got together many of the original members of my father's band, the Saddleman and Comets, the very first band. And um, that apparently was so successful that they decided to stay together and go out and start touring. So they did, and they called themselves Bill Haley's Original Comets. Well, just backtracking a little bit, when my father left in 1962 and fled the country, there was a booking agent, the Jolly Joyce Agency, who um, did some legal maneuvering to procure the rights to the name because my father apparently was not here to um, to fight that mm. or, or to contest that. So he ended up with the legal rights. So he put together a series of bands called Bill Haley's Comets and made a lot of money, even though none of them played with my father for more than 15 minutes. But when the original Comets started touring, they were sued by that entity. And there was a legal battle. And the long and short of it was that the ruling was something to the effect. I can't say specific, something to the effect that because not only were there those two bands, there was another band in Germany trying to do this. And they called themselves the New Comets or something. And the original Comets, New Comets, Bill Haley's Comets. So apparently the judge's ruling was that Comets is is a generic name for a style of music something along those lines. So when I started my band and called it Bill Haley Jr. and the Comets, and I did the search for the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the legal, you know, who owns what, um, there was really nobody who, who had kept up the, the, the fees to maintain the legal, you know, rights to it or something. So, you know, nobody contested my use of the name or protested it. And so we just went with it. And um, that's the way it is now to this day. Listeners, go to the show notes and click on Bill Haley Jr. and the comments to go to the website. One thing I do want to touch on, January of 2015, you guys performed at the Winter Dance Party at Surf Ballroom. You were on the same lineup as Tommy Alsup, who played with Buddy Holly, who tragically died the night that the music died. What was it like for you going to play at Surf Ballroom? I was recently there to tour it, and the place is phenomenal. I just wanted to get your thoughts on playing there. Yeah, well, yeah, well, and actually, we're going to be there again uh, in 2023. We're, we're scheduled in February. Nice. So we'll be back there. Well, yeah, we'll be back there. Um, so what's there now is not the original building. I'm not sure if it burned down or what happened. So it's, I think it's on the same spot or right near it. Um, but it's very cool. They, I mean, they made it basically a mini museum as well. You've been there. You've seen it, right? They have tons of photographs and so on and so forth. So, yeah, very, very cool, obviously. And, um, and we met Tommy. And, uh, and, and Tommy had his, his coin flip story. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard that story, <laughs> yep. right? 
Um, and and I guess someone else tells it, Waylon Jennings or somebody tells a different version of the story, but they were both there. I don't know who's who or who's what, but but basically, you know, and, and it's not just there, you know, that's very cool. We're going to be doing in a couple next week, we're, we're leaving to be on a Malt Shop Memories cruise where we play with, once again, I think Chubby Checker, Frankie Avalon. So, so you know, whenever I'm in those situations where I, I get to rub shoulders with the, the originals who were there, it's a, it's a really fun, exciting, interesting experience for me, particularly because I'm, I, I become in, in some sense, a, a you know, a, a scholar of this period of music, not just my dad's music, but I mean, I really love everything from the mid forties with, with the rhythm and blues combos up through the sixties. I mean, I just, that period of music is just fascinating to me. So, so I thoroughly enjoy meeting and talking to all those people. And, 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 you know, basically, as I alluded to the, the, the challenge of that is, memories falter every year. Now you're talking now 75 years. Um, so the stories, and, and this happened too during the research for, for my book, which is another reason it took so long to write it because <laughs> of all the interviews I did and all the topics and stories, there was so much conflict and there was so much uh, between the versions and you know uh, discrepancies that really figuring out what's true and what's not is very, very difficult. But that being said, it's it's fascinating to hear the, the stories of the in individuals who were there and their perspectives on, on uh, you know, what it was like at the time. Um, and of course, as far as who did what, that's a matter for, you know, the, the forensic uh, historians to figure out, I guess. Two-part question. Was it difficult for you to start to keep your father's music alive after what your family had gone through? And the second part of that is what is the feeling these days of keeping it alive? Yeah. So, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I, I was um, uh, reluctant to go and become a professional musician uh, because of the intimidation factor, my mm -hmm. father's fame, you know, you can never, I, I would never be able to achieve that level of, of success. Um, but the process of writing the book and then putting the band together and going out and now my father toured 40 weeks, 40 plus weeks a year for, you know, 30 some years or more. So it was nothing like that, but just simply, you know, being away on the road for extended periods of time made me come to have a much greater understanding of what it must have been like to try to maintain a relationship with your family and never seeing them. Um, so it gave me empathy and understanding and helped me work through. I had a lot of bitterness, you know, I really, I really, not just because, you know, of, um, uh, the, the abandonment issues, but just, you know, the whole, it, it was difficult for me as a child growing up, having uh, constantly being, because I have his name, my father's name. And of course, um, it was a lot closer to when it happened when I was young. Um, everywhere I went, every time I met somebody, I was always asked, Oh, Bill, Oh, you Bill Haley, if your dad, you must have had a great life. What was that? You know, the expectation was I had a wonderful life. My father was rich and I, but none of that was true. We lived in poverty when he left it, you know, we really had to scrape and it was a difficult life. So, so there were, and, and then of course the emotional uh, abandonment was just as difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, people assumed I had a relationship with my father and I didn't. I mean, I barely knew him as a child. He was, you know, I, I got to play drums in the, on the, on the cardboard box, but that was, you know, that was rare. That wasn't common. Um, and I would see him on holidays and, and, and whatnot, but there was no real father son relationship then. And um, until I got to, you know, once again, reconnect in 1979, uh, there was nothing. So it was all very, very difficult and, and, and it left uh, a lot of um, negative feelings toward my father, you know, that I had to work through. Uh, 
So the process of writing the book and then especially um, putting this band together and performing the music, getting the experience of touring, but not only touring, but performing and then meeting the audience after each show and hearing, seeing the joy on people's faces that this music brought to them and hearing them tell me how much they love my father's music and where they were when they first heard rock around the clock. And, you know, when they saw my father perform, I mean, the, the amount of love and joy that, that came from that to me vicariously um, was extremely healing and cathartic. So, so um, it, it, it now it's a full 360. I think I've, I, you know, maybe maybe you never can fully let go of, of, of things like this, but I really feel I've, I've really done a, a, a 180 and I really have a lot of empathy and understanding for my father and and um, and, uh, and and forgive, you know, those the feelings of abandonment, because I understand there's something much bigger than myself involved here. And, and my father, I'm sure he regretted it. And that may even be part of his his uh, his troubled life that he led, you know, emotionally troubled life. Um his guilt over over abandoning our family and his first family where he had two children as well. So um, so to answer your question, it's all been very, very helpful for me to, to really work through any lingering um, negativity. And now it's really just um, appreciation and admiration. I mean, I always admired him and respected him for what he accomplished professionally, but I really had to come to terms with his personal shortcomings and but 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 I've been able to do that as well. So so yeah, it's been a long journey. But um, I guess that's what life's about, right? You're challenged, and you and I, I know a little bit about your story, Tommy. I, I read up a bit on you and your you know your your health issues, and so you know I admire you too for that. So the same kind of thing, you know, challenge is difficult, but in some ways the process of coming through that challenge, if we can get through it, makes us better people in the end. Agree. What's your favorite song of your father's to perform? Hmm. Well, I, I won't say one song in particular, but I'll say this. There, there was a period before Rock Around the Clock where they did a number of records on the uh, the Essex label out of Philadelphia. Um, like Crazy Man Crazy is one of those. But they were they were, you know, you know, Dance with the Dolly and, you know, Rock and Beat and Boogie. And uh, there, there were so many of them. But that period, that particular period, those records that came out in 1953, uh, 52, 53, they're, they're my favorites. Uh, Rocking Chair on the Moon. Um, I just love I just love the the creative energy that went into creating those songs. Now, I, I love the Decca tunes that are very popular too. shake, rattle and roll. See you later, alligator. They're they're great to perform as well. But personally, just from the standpoint of listening, I really enjoy those earlier ones, those Essex tunes. Bill, thanks so much for taking some time coming on my show, talking about what you're doing to keep your father's music alive and reliving some of the good and not so good times of your life. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tommy. You are more than welcome. Listeners, what I'd like you to do is go to the show notes, click on the links. This is Bill Haley Jr. links or below in the Before the Lights links. Click on BTL members and join that special group that meets once a month via Zoom and get a bunch of other perks with it. Until next time, thank you for listening. I'm Tommy Canale. A salute, everybody. A chin chin. <laughs>